Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Knock, knock. Who's there? Panther. Panther who? Panther, no panther. I'm going swimming. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nuneman from APM American Public Media. This is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just heard a joke from Chaz Bundick, the man behind the band Toro y Moi. That'll help break the ice, especially when you tell folks our listeners voted that as the best joke we've had on the show all year. Yes, that's Crazy. called keeping the humor bar low. Folks. Yeah. But fear not, we've kept the bar high for the rest of the episode. It's our annual best of show featuring our favorite segments and interviews of the year. Coming up, you'll hear from director Spike Lee, musician Randy Newman, and Carrie Brownstein of the hipster and TV show Portlandia. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. Now, usually at this point in the show, we bring in a journalist to tell us about one little-known unusual news item that he or she will be talking about at their dinner party that weekend. But one is just not enough for a best-of show, so Mm -mm. here's a big, heaping bowlful of our favorite small talk stories of the year, starting with this one from the host of NPR's Radio Lab and a recently named MacArthur genius, Jad Abumrad. He told us a story of a fossil that was found on the island of Minorca of a giant rabbit, a 26.4 pound rabbit. Apparently on this island, the Mediterranean Sea went away for a while and then it came back stranding this rabbit and it had no predators. So its body got bigger and it didn't need to hop. Wow. I mean, I'm looking at an article now with an artist's rendering of this (laughs) rabbit and it looks sort of like a cow with a rabbit's head. How do we know it's a rabbit? <laughs> How do we know it's a rabbit? That's a good question. It's sort of the philosophical quandary of our age, really. What is a rabbit? What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, there's a bill in the Texas legislature to allow noodling for catfish in Texas. Noodling is where you essentially put your hand on there and wait for a giant flathead catfish, which can be up to 100 pounds, to bite your hand. At which point you grab it and fling it into an icebox. The Oxford English Dictionary this week released its new list of words that they have taken out of the dictionary. And among the words that they have removed is the word cassette tape. I'm going to be talking about Boring 2010, which was held last month in London. It's a conference whose goal was to bore its audience to tears for seven hours. I'm going to be talking about a new website where you can rate your priests. I will be talking about a new jalapeno pepper that was scientifically created so we can have bigger jalapeno poppers. I'm going to be talking about a new pill that could help erase memories. (laughs) I didn't realize they put beer into pills. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about William and Kate, uh, Duchess Catherine, I believe. Uh, Uh, They have begrudgingly put up a help-wanted sign because they're ready to have servants. They weren't going to have servants, is that right? The poor things were trying to go it alone. (laughs) I'm going to be dismaying the multitudes with the story about the Indiana Department of Education saying that schools don't have to teach kids how to write in cursive anymore. Oxford University psychologists have found in one of their greater findings ever, (laughs) French fries taste better by the sea. What? Is it because it's salty by yeah, the sea? Is it it's salt air? <laughs> you know, this story kind of annoys me a little bit because everything tastes better at the beach. <laughs> Getting that... punched in the face tastes better <laughs> at the beach. Uh, a group of European scientists have created a, a wonderful new program called Robo-Earth. Uh-huh. And it's a kind of internet for robots. What? On, on the one hand, I'm relieved they don't already have their own internet. Yeah. But I'm concerned that they're getting their own. This is like... Absolutely. This is like arming deer. <laughs> 
And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our world-famous history lesson with booze. And for this special episode, we are reaching back into our own history to bring you our favorite history segment of the last year. Wow. Can we do that without causing some rift in the space-time continuum? I don't know. It's never been tried. (laughs) We might not even exist anymore. Uh, We aired this back in September. It is the story of the day Sweden made a shift to the right. And we don't mean politically. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Ever wonder why some countries drive on the left? In Sweden, it was due to an ancient royal decree, something about making deliveries easier for mail carts. But by the 1960s, Sweden was surrounded by countries that drove on the right. Tourists would drive into Sweden and crash, and Swedes would drive out of Sweden and do the same. So in 1967, the government announced H-Day. H for Hooger, the Swedish word for right. At 4 a.m. that day, the entire country would start driving on the Hooger. H-Day preparations were massive. The government had to change traffic signs on 70,000 miles of road. Public buses got retrofitted with doors on the right. And Swedish TV raised awareness with an H-Day song contest. The winning tune was called Keep to the Right, Svensson. On H-Day morning, 8,000 cops hit the streets to oversee the chaos. But except for a morning traffic jam, there was no chaos. In fact, there were fewer traffic accidents that month than usual. One of H-Day's planners called it a revolution in a few hours. So that was the history. Now for the drink. On the line is Stefan Lindstrom at Bar Riesch in Stockholm, Sweden. Stefan, you heard the history. What drink did it inspire? It inspired me a drink we call the Swede 67, of course. Of course, because that's when this all went down. Yes. The drink is uh, you have a couple of fresh raspberries and you mush them a little together with elderflower schnapps. Are those is, are raspberries sort of native to Sweden? Is that a yes, popular? Yes, it's very Swede? Swedish, and, and that's something that I picked a lot in those days at my grandmother's place. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and elderflower schnapps is very common, and it was around in those days. All right, so you you muddle raspberries and schnapps. You muddle the the raspberries, and then you just pour champagne or sparkling wine on top of it. Well, that sounds lovely. So you were actually around for H-Day. I was around, but I was a young kid, you know. We got stickers from the gas stations that said H on them, and we put them on our bikes and stuff. Really? Was it like a sort of punk rock thing to do, (laughs) to (laughs) put an H on your bike? I don't know if it was a punk rock thing, but that's what we did. (laughs) That's the most that I remember. Because it went smoothly. I don't think it was a very big thing, you know. And then we thought, like in England, they were not mature enough to get the right-hand traffic. (laughs) You looked down your noses at the British because they were still driving on the left? Of course. (laughs) And, Brendan, one more factoid. Okay. Another reason Sweden stopped driving on the left is back then they imported a lot of cars from America. Those cars had the steering wheel on the left. 
So if you tried to pass on a two-lane highway in Sweden, it was hard to see if cars were coming at you. So there were all these head-on collisions. <laughs> oh my goodness, terrible. That's probably why Volvos are so safe. Yeah, I'm surprised they weren't made of bricks. That's why it's the public radio car of choice. <laughs> Folks, you can find the recipe for the Swede 67 and all of our drinks on our website. Proceed with caution to dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, so on most of our shows, we have a big featured interview with what we call our guest of honor. That's right. It's kind of our cover story. Mm -hmm. And usually we just have one of those per episode. But you know, it being the holiday weekend, we thought we'd gift you with several. Yes, it's like Hanukkah in radio form here today. I'll take half your word for that. Yes, the half Jewish part of me. And we are starting off with an interview Brendan did with Carrie Brownstein. The second season of her sketch comedy show, Portlandia, launches next month on the cable channel IFC. But back in February when we taped this, the first season had just begun. Our guest of honor this week is Carrie Brownstein. She stars with Fred Armisen in the new sketch comedy show, Portlandia. She is also the former guitarist for the revered band Sleater Kinney. Here's a clip from the show where she and Armisen are at a coffee shop getting competitive about their reading habits. Did you read that thing in Mother Jones about eco chairs and eco ways to sit? I did. Yeah. I did. Did you read that thing in Spain about all the festivals? Uh-huh. Did you read that thing in Pace? It was about the National. Oh, I saw that. Did you read that thing in Dwell about all the mid-century houses? Yeah. Did you read the New York Times? Yes. New York Observer? Yes. Washington Post? Yes. Wall Street Journal? Of course I read it. Did you read that steampunk article in Boing Boing? I did not like the end of it. Did you read that skywriting over the Willamette River? Yes. Did you read that fortune cookie? Yes. From last night? Yes. Did you read Sounds it? Yes. so <laughs> familiar to me. <laughs> Uh, you know, Carrie, your show was created to satirize your hometown of Portland, but it really skewers kind of a certain progressive, overprecious, liberal artsy, you know, subset of the population that you can find anywhere, right? I think so. I mean, I, there was a question at the beginning, you know, will this show appeal to people outside of Portland? We intuitively felt like it would, but we weren't sure. And then, of course, once the episode started airing, Portland turned out to be a city that was watching it a lot less than other <laughs> cities, um, mostly because people here can't afford cable and <laughs> and don't have uh, IFC. You can't dumpster dive cable. You can't. Why do you think a show like this hasn't been done before? It, that's a good question. This is a conversation that's been going on for a while among liberals and progressives and hipsters. Is I think what's What's happened is it's reached a tipping point where we're all starting to wonder, what does this mean? Is this actually a worthwhile way of living? So I think the show happens to have come in right at a time where people are not just living this lifestyle, but also sort of self-critiquing it. No, the humor is definitely low-hanging, organic fruit, uh, <laughs> in part because the culture it's curing is so self-aware. You know, But I wonder why that should be. Why do they have to be uptight about who they are? They're, they're good-intentioned. Part of it is just that it's just such a kind of meta culture, sort of hyper analytical. And so you're aware of the silliness to it, even though you're just completely prescribing to the, to the lifestyle. It's like you're, you're trying to do good, but then you're aware that there's certain ways that you're, you have to be good. And in some ways, at least for me, that creates a little bit of a contrarian nature. Sometimes I just get so frustrated that I just want to litter and drive an SUV <laughs> and, you know, just carry plastic bags everywhere. I mean, it, it just can get so overwhelming. And I think that at the same time, when, when we're attacked by people we perceive as outsiders, we'll defend it, you know, endlessly. Well, look, we have two standard questions on our show. The first question is, what question are you tired of being asked uh, in interviews or at dinner parties, for that matter? <clears throat> I think questions that ask me to describe, uh, especially music. So what does your band sound like? Yeah. I mean please just listen to it. The album sounds like the album sounds like the album. I mean, you start to sound like Gertrude Stein, but it's just like, okay. All right. Well, uh, our last question is, 
tell us something we don't know, either about you or the world at large. Something that you may not know about me is that I am a little bit superstitious because things happen to me that are weird. So (laughs) I was out walking in the forest with my dog. Okay. And I've lost my cell phone. I get home. I still had a home phone. And my father called and he said, "Um, someone's found your phone. They called me. You know, they looked up dad and they called my dad. So I drove out and picked up my phone from this couple and brought them a bottle of wine and thanked them and just said, you know, gosh, you've saved me so much trouble. Eight months later, I was out on the same walk mm-hmm. and um, I find a cell phone. So I call and I talk to this woman and I'm like, I have your cell phone. She's like, okay, well, come meet me. And she picks this like strip mall to go meet her outside of. And I pull up next to her car and it's the same woman that found my phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh and my goodness. Stuff yeah. like that happens to me all the time. Don't leave me hanging. Did she bring you a bottle of wine or what? She brought me chocolates. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Enrico, Carrie not only launched Portlandia this year, yeah. she also started up a new band, Wild Flag. Of course. Rolling Stone just named their debut album one of the top 10 albums of the year. Oh my so. God. Man, whatever she did karmically to deserve that great of a year, it must have been something. Man. Yeah, she was not throwing trash out of SUVs. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Spike Lee delivers a gentle critique of today's film business. Different people run studios. They're doing this 3D bullshit. All that and more when The Dinner Party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and this is our annual Best Of episode, the best segments we have aired on the show over the last year. It's like a 10-course meal, but each course is filet mignon. That actually doesn't sound that great to me. All right. Nine filet mignons and one cheesecake course. (laughs) There you go. All right. Uh, Coming up, Brendan travels to Philly to taste the latest rival to the cheesesteak. But first, here's another of our favorite Guest of Honor interviews of the year. Back in January, Rico sat down with filmmaker Spike Lee, who had just released a new coffee table book looking back at his film Do the Right Thing. That film is frequently listed as one of the greatest movies ever made. And Spike, welcome. How you doing? Very well. So this movie comes out in 1989. Amazingly, some of the people in our audience were barely born at that point. If you could uh, give us a synopsis for the few people who don't know this movie. Well, I don't want to really get a synopsis, but I think more as important is that people forget when this film came out, many top critics predicted that this film would cause race riots because what my character did in the film. I think it was David Demi was one of the big critics. Joe, I forgot the other guy's name. Joe Klein. Joe Klein. Newsweek, I believe. Yeah, those guys have never owned up to it, ever. I remember, I remember the David Demi quote, pray to God this film does not play in your neighborhood. That is, it's just amazing to me, especially looking back. I haven't seen it since it came out. Uh, watching it again, actually what strikes me is that two-thirds of that movie are really pleasant. You like everybody in this movie. It's buoyant and fun. So consequently, there was a significant part of the white audience who was scared and waited to see the film if they did <laughs> on VHS. Which is, a, which is a shame. What do you think they saw in it that they were so afraid of? Black people running amok. <laughs> <laughs> to answer my own question from earlier, it is about, you know, a day in the life of this block in Brooklyn Never that ends in a race riot. Well, I wouldn't really call it a, a, a race riot. I just think it's a, a riot. And the biggest fallacy is that my character, Mookie, started the riot. He throws a garbage can through his white bus, Sal's window. The riot starts when the NYPD murder Raider Rahim 
and the infamous chokehold. For me, as a creator of the piece, that's what starts to riot. Why do you think people seem to overlook the fact that, a, seriously, it happens within like minutes. A black character dies, then Mookie okay. throws a garbage can through a window, but somehow the garbage can through the window is what people focused on. Well, Do the Right Thing was really a litmus test. It was amazing for me, because I could see it plain in day in ink. When I'm reading reviews lamenting the loss of white-owned property, Sal's famous pizzeria burnt down, and never once mentioned the loss of life, Right away, it tells me they put more value on white-owned property than they do with the life of Ray Rahim, who most would consider a thug, walking around, you know, in a big boombox. Now, in the defense of critics, I mean, you could argue that Radio Rahim as a character, he has very few lines. You don't know a whole lot about him. You get a whole bunch of scenes with Sal where he's talking about how much he feels connected to the neighborhood, and he's constantly talking down his extremely flagrantly racist son. People identified with him more. I totally disagree. I think that guys like Ray Rahim are scary <laughs> to white audiences. I mean, they'd rather see Drama's Daisy. Which won Best Picture of the Year your movie came yes. out. I can tell you're over it. I'm not. I mean, it's, look, Drama's Daisy is not being taught in universities and colleges all over the world. So you won. It's not a question of winning. You know, it's... You have to really be careful as an artist, I feel, that you really can't fall in the trap to let other people validate your work. And the fact that Do the Right Thing wasn't even nominated for Best Picture didn't mean anything. Uh, what's her name? Kim Basinger. You know, people forget this. During the Academy Awards, she was very brave and made a statement saying that uh, the film that should be the Best Picture wasn't even nominated. And she said, Do the Right Thing. Were you in the house that night? Yeah, I was there. What was your reaction? I was shocked. But Ray Arheem did talk. And with the great acting of, of Bill Nunn, I don't think that you understanding the character depends upon how many words and lines they speak. Reading the book, one of the things I really like about the oral history that begins the book is there's this kind of Rashomon quality to it, where the same story is told by different people who have totally different recollections of it. When you were going over the transcripts of this stuff, what most surprised you? For our audiences, I, we should explain that Rashomon, great, great film by the one of the world's greatest filmmakers, Akira Kurosawa. And in this film, there's a rape and the characters involved get their interpretation of what happened. In fact, Rashomon was inspiration for She's Gotta Have It. She's Gotta Have It being your first film. My first film, you have this woman, Nola Darlin, who's involved with three men at the same time. And you have three men giving their, their story about her. Relationships as Rashomon. Relationships. So that's the wonderful thing I like about what Jason Matloff did with the oral history. Everybody has their different opinion of what happened. And, uh, some people's memory is bad. <laughs> Give me an example, man. Uh, All right, I'm going to put you on the spot. You supposedly discovered one of the film's stars, Rosie Perez. You said dancing oh, yeah, on top of a speaker that. at a party. Now, there's a thing called revisionist history, and I love Rosie to death, but this is the truth. A word to my mother. It was my birthday, and at the time, the number one R&B song was The Butt, which is from School Days. Your second movie? My second film. So the dance was called The Butt. So we had a butt contest. You know, it was men and women. And there was this woman just on top of a speaker who was dancing like crazy. And of course, if she falls and breaks her neck, I'm going to be sued. I, I said, will you please get down? 
She didn't want to, but she came down and then cursed me out in a voice I never heard before. Rosie Perez cursed? I'm shocked. To the Claret Mookie, all right? And I'm tired of it, all right? Because you need to step off with your stupid ass self, okay? And you need to get a life, Mookie, all right? Because the one you got, baby, is not working, okay? And I ain't going to deal with this no more. I never heard a voice like this before. I said, where are you from? She says, Brooklyn. I said, what neighborhood in Brooklyn? She says, Fort Greene. I'm from Fort Greene. And that's how I met her. Now, Rosie was not protesting. She says she was up on the speaker screaming to protest the sexism at the butt she contest. First of all, Rosie was a choreographer for In Living Color, the TV show. They had the Fly Girls, and Jennifer Lopez was one of the Fly Girls. There were some butts is what you're saying. It was shaking their ass. <laughs> so Rosie, I love her, but that story is not true. All right, this movie came out 21 years ago at a time when racial tension is maybe as high as it's ever been in my lifetime. It was very high in New York City, that's for sure. In revisiting it, something that strikes me is Universal Studios really stood behind this movie that was going to be controversial. I think a lot of people knew that it would be. Do you think that would still happen today? Could a young Spike Lee get that movie made? I don't think this film can be made now in this climate. I got to give a shout out to my man, Mr. Tom Pollock was running Universal Pictures and was under extreme pressure to not have this film released. And in fact, he'd been through the ringer a year before with Last Temptation of Christ, Scorsese's film. And for a period of time, Tom needed to have armed guards because he was getting death threats. For that movie? For Temptation of Christ. So it's very understandable for him to say, you know what? this. I almost got people trying to kill me. Life is too short. I'm sorry, Spike, I can't do it. But he didn't do that. But you don't think it would happen today? I don't think this film's getting made today. Different people run the studios. They're doing this 3D bullshit. So. You don't see a do the right thing 3D? <laughs> Does not surprise me. All right. I have two uh, questions that we ask everyone on this show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Hmm. Why did Mookie throw the garbage can through the window? You kind of brought that up yourself, though, this time. Yeah, I get asked it all the time. I can imagine that that's a tough one to answer because, you know. It's not tough at all because nobody black has ever asked me that. <laughs> ever. Really? Never. They're living as a black American in this country. They know what it's like. Last question that we ask everyone on the show. Tell us something we don't know. Well, not too many know that I'm a professor at NYU. And the last six years, I've been the artistic director. I did actually know that. Well, you're on the money. But maybe we can end with something that I learned from your book that I didn't know. Our nation's president went on his first date with Michelle Obama to do the right thing. That's a true story. Yeah, but really? I mean, it just doesn't seem like a date movie to me. It was for them. Their first date. As I said in the book, if Barack had taken Michelle to see Drama's Days instead, she would have dumped him after that. (laughs) He got to go. Filmmaker Spike Lee, recorded in January of this year. You're listening to the best of The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now, time to eavesdrop. 
So Eavesdrop was a new addition to our show this year. It's a segment where writers can showcase their work without being asked pesky questions. Yes, which gives us time to nap, which is always nice. Is. We had a lot of folks come by, but our favorite was Niall Rogers. He was a member of 70s disco band Chic. He's produced hits for everyone from Diana Ross to Madonna. For us, he recounted a story from his memoir called La Freak. So my songwriting and production partner, bassist extraordinaire Bernard Edwards, he and I were invited over to Studio 54 because Grace Jones believed that she wanted us to produce and write her new record. It was New Year's Eve, 1977, going into 78. Grace Jones said to us in that very affected voice of hers, "Okay, darling, I want you to come to the back door and you knock on the door and you tell them that you're a personal guest of Grace Jones, which is like, you know, that's like saying you're a personal guest of <laughs> Elvis. So it, was, it seemed plausible to us, so we did that. We got dressed up in our um, New Year's Eve best and we knocked on the back door and we said we were personal guests of Grace Jones. And the security guy at the back door uh, looked us up and down, didn't spend much time evaluating us, and basically just said, um, F off. Slammed the door in our faces, and we figured that uh, it was probably a legitimate error, and maybe Grace had given our names uh, to the front door. So we walked around, and, and, and as soon as we hit 54th Street and 8th Avenue, we saw this ocean of people, and we sort of swam through this ocean of people, and we got to the bouncer, the now famous Mark Beneke at the front door. And Mark looked up and down the list and he didn't find our names anywhere. And it was pretty obvious that we weren't going to get into Studio 54 that night. So uh, we walked to my apartment, which was just around the corner. And music is not just my livelihood, but it's also my release mechanism. And so I picked up my guitar, Bernard picked up his bass, and I instantly started doing this jam. uh, Something like... And was into it. And we just started grooving and riffing and we started singing Ah F off boom 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 F Studio 54 Ah F off boom 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 and as we sang it over and over, it would develop and develop and develop. And we did this entire elaborate arrangement of the song. And it was pretty brilliant, actually. And Bernard recognized that it was brilliant. And he looked at me and said, um, uh, pulling his glasses down over the bridge of his nose, uh, now you know this is happening, right? So I, I say to him, oh, come on, man, we can't get... Uh, F off on the top 40 radio, um, you know, uh, uh, that ain't going to work. So we uh, changed F off to freak off, which was a euphemism for the F word. And we kept grooving on that. And somehow the lyrics didn't make sense. Freak off didn't sound sexy. It just didn't have that thing. And then uh, I went back into my hippie mode because I was, you know, a hippie <laughs> in the late 60s and early 70s. And, and I just reverted like in one split second. I said, oh, wow, nod, man. How about like when you're freaking out, you know, like when you drop acid, man. And, you know, and he looked at me like, what? And I said, whoops, I forgot my black identity card. And I just flipped on a dime and said, hey, you know what I'm talking about, my brother. You know, like when you're on the dance floor, you know, there's a fine chick and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you freak out because the music is overwhelming you. And he said, oh, yeah. Aww. Freak out. Oh, freak out. 
So they that night they weren't going to let us in. Uh, only a short while after, there was an indie record that came out called A Night at Studio 54. And guess what the featured song was? And guess who was on the cover? Me and Bernard and our little band, Chic. <laughs> and the premiere song on that record was La Freak. And that album went multiple platinum. Producer Niall Rogers recounting a story from his memoir, Le Freak, an upside-down story of family, disco, and destiny. Enrico, 80 miles south of Studio 54 lies Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Your hometown. You're very proud of it. That's right. It's true. And I was even prouder of Philly after Savoir Magazine named it the sandwich capital of the world this year. Where all the sandwiches go to live. (laughs) Now, it won that honor partly because of the city's famous cheesesteak, but lately, Philly's taken another sandwich into its partially clogged heart. It's called the Paisano. Back in March, I met up with its inventor, Peter McAndrews, and I asked him where the name came from. Paisanos in Italy means countrymen. We're Paisans. About 15 years ago, me and uh, one of my chefs, we had studied in Italy together. We would split a sandwich every day. And eventually, one of the sandwiches that we, we had made made it to the menu, and we called it the Paisano sandwich because... It took two people to eat it. Can you tell us what's in it for people who haven't seen one? It's, this is a brisket. It's uh, essentially slightly cured overnight, so when you slice it, it doesn't fall apart. You can even An Irish gal can cook this, and she wouldn't myrtleize it, you know what I mean? Uh, but it's a roast brisket with hot peppers, roasted tomato, and, of course, we put two over-easy eggs on it to make it nice. Now, the egg is a recurring feature in some of these sandwiches. That's something uncommon that I haven't seen before. I'm an Irish guy who does Italian food. I study a lot about Italian food as well. Egg really plays a, a large role and a lot of Italian cuisine, especially uh, like cucina povera, which is poor people's food. You know, they put eggs in lasagna, uh, they have pepper and egg sandwiches, and we do a, a lasagna sandwich called the lasagna bolognese, which we deep fry a piece of lasagna and we put two eggs on top of it. But in Italy, the eggs would be on the inside, hard cooked. So we just rethought it a little bit and said, hey, you know what? It's self-saucing, going to get a little, on, a little on your chin, so you can't lie to your wife and tell you, where, you know, that you weren't out eating sandwiches, but it makes it a gorgeous thing. Fried lasagna, now that to me sounds like uh, someone like challenged you to make the craziest sandwich on the planet Earth. Like, how did you come up with that idea? You know, the cooks were in the kitchen. You know, what, what can we eat real fast? We have two pieces of old lasagna left. Instead of throwing them away, you deep fry them and, and put the eggs and uh, smoked mozzarella cheese on it, and there you have the lasagna bolognese sandwich. Are there any cardiologists in this town? Now, actually, I know a few of them. They come into the sandwich shops, but, uh, you know, once a week, you, they, they let you slide, I think. Paisano seems like it's going gangbusters. Everybody talks about it. You have two locations now. You have this restaurant. Did you know it was going to be so successful? In a million years, I never thought it would be that successful because, you know, there are, Philadelphia is a sandwich mecca. Uh, New York has great pizza. Philly has great sandwiches. The sandwich shops that are successful here in Philly are shops that really, you know, you have to, you have to think about every, every layer, and you want to put love into every sandwich. You want to make love to the sandwich. I kind of want to make love to that brisket, actually. Uh, you better ask your girlfriend first because... You look, you look like you're from L.A. I don't know if she's going to let you eat the whole thing. <laughs> I know. I have to, get, I have to get, gain some uh, Philly weight. All right, I want, to take, I want to take a bite of one of these. That's all right. If I can even bite this. Are you supposed to eat this with a forklift? You, know, you, look, you look nice, so you don't want to get any on your sweater. You, know? you have to lean over. All right, hold on. Let me, I'm going to get into this. Mm. Thank you. Yes, I need some napkins. <laughs> and there's horseradish in there, right? Yeah, a little horseradish mayo gives it a nice bite. It helps cut the, the richness and the fattiness of the brisket real nice. And, and then they have the egg to bring that richness and fattiness right back. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It calms it all down. The, the egg is actually what gives it balance. It tones a lot of the sharp flavors down in the sandwich. Is the cheesesteak in any danger of being taken over by the <laughs> paisano, do you think? 
No, I don't think so at all, but uh, it's too ingrained. But the Paisano is, is catching up. And in reality, the Paisano is a little more uh, educated sandwich, something that's as good or better than a cheesesteak and being, having a little more character. You know, you're, now you're on the public record saying it's better than a cheesesteak. You know that. There's going to be threats. I apologize. Uh, I've been threatened before, though. It's no problem. Sandwich ma'am, sandwich ma'am, cartellone di cinema. So, Rico, is it any surprise that the city that brought you Teddy Pendergrass and the Constitution would invent something as ingenious as fried lasagna? It's, it's incredible. See, I think the Constitution should be inscribed onto fried lasagna. It should replace the flag. That is America. <laughs> All right, time for a break. But coming up, Brendan tells musician Randy Newman that he's pretty cool. Is that true? Believe it, Randy. When the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you stuff to talk about in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. It's our special Best Of episode, where we play you our favorite pieces of radio from this year. In a few minutes, we'll hear Brendan's conversation with Randy Newman from back in June. Noonan vs. Newman. It was a heady episode. Indeed. We're also going to play some of your favorite songs of the year. But first, Brendan, do you remember when you suggested I eat a 100-year-old egg for our 100th episode? <laughs> in fact, I do. Great. I, I heard it was a Chinese delicacy, and then you researched it and found out that it tasted like ammonia. Yeah, and by <laughs> then it was too late. I'd already arranged to eat one with Carl Chu, author of the Dining Guide Chinese Food Finder. We met up at the Empress Pavilion, a restaurant here in L.A. When I arrived, I asked him the obvious question. Why is it called a 100-year-old egg? It is not actually 100 years old, obviously, or it would probably be inedible. It's kind of interesting to have, a, to have an egg that's 100 years old, yeah. but no. It's basically a pickled egg that's been made in about a month's time, pickled in an alkaline brine made of salt, wood ash, and some tea. Why? Well, there's an urban legend that these 100-year-old eggs were originally made by soaking in horse urine. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I don't want to believe that it was true. Me neither. <laughs> so um, there's, there's a more palatable version of the story that um, a duck farmer four or 500 years ago accidentally left a bunch of eggs in, in a pile of, wood, uh, of ash and discovered months later that they became this fossilized egg. And when he broke them open, it looked like it's been uh, sitting around for the last 100 years. And so he said, I'll eat that. So he tasted it, I guess, and liked it. I have to tell you that the, the idea of eating basically a fossilized egg to my Western palate, that doesn't sound like it's going to be all oh, that you great. Can handle it. <laughs> all right, so here we are in the, in the restaurant. We just ordered, and I'm not entirely sure what we just ordered. I think we're going to get a kanji, which is rice porridge, with um, minced 100 year old eggs with minced pork. It's a standard dish for breakfast. And I think we're getting a, another cold dish, kind of like a salad of these eggs, paired with pickled ginger. We'll see how that goes. I've never had that before. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, for whatever reason, I was kind of hoping that I'd have this in a heated dish. I don't know, cold, it just seems like it's going to be more of a challenge. I think you might find it surprisingly good. You know, and I also have to say, I mean, I'm acting like this is some sort of, you know, disgusting thing, but it's no worse than the tube of pickled eggs that you see at, you know, a thousand bars in America either. I tend to think that these are much, much better than that. I'm sorry, uh, what is your name? Uh, Davey. Davey, and you work for Empress Pavilion? Yes. This is a uh, war, a uh, thousand years egg. Okay, so this is the warm egg here. This is cold, thousand years egg. Oh, wait. I have to ask you, 
I've heard it referred to as a hundred-year-old egg and a thousand-year-old egg, which is correct. Well, depends how old you are. Well, this is for our hundredth episode, so I, if it's not called a hundred-year-old egg, then I don't need to eat it, is what I'm saying. There were too many names, okay? Thousand years old egg or a hundred years old egg, I like to say that because I'm not that old. <laughs> Make me younger. <laughs> um, oh, wow, I'm starting to smell it. I was told it would be kind of ammonia-y, but it is kind of, it smells almost vinegary to me. Yes, and this is a vinegar, the dipping. And some people, they like to dip with the just sugar only. Sugar? Yes. Oh, I see this. It's powdered sugar over there. All right, so which, which one should I try first here? You want to try the congee first? It's warm. I feel like I should maybe try the egg by itself first. Uh, I don't know why. I feel like it's like diving into the cold pool. It looks just like jello, doesn't it? It's been quartered. And it's, it's really, it looks black, although I can tell that that's mainly coming from the yolk. The white You see how is, the whites have turned into some kind of a, like a cola brown color? It's still clear, so you can see right through it. All right, I'm going to try this. The center is a little more like a custard. Hold on. Hmm. You see it's not so bad? It isn't, but I definitely see the ammonia-y part of it. In the mouth, it tastes like pudding, but in the nose, it's like I'm inhaling ammonia. But it's not overpowering. No. I'm rather proud of myself right now. <laughs> I think you made it. Hold on. I'm going to take one more bite of the warm egg this time. I'm going to dip. Now I'm just clipping along. Now that I'm not afraid anymore, I'm just going to like inhale your entire restaurant. And I'm sorry about that in advance. <laughs> you can come anytime. We can uh, cook some uh, stranger food for you. So, Brendan, you'll find videos on YouTube of people eating one of these and getting sick. Oh, I think I saw those. Those have to be bogus. There is nothing wrong with a 100-year-old egg. It's, oh. It tastes fine. Darn it. I mean, I'm glad that you ended up liking the egg. You know? <laughs> uh, remind me to tell you about this new delicacy called 10-day-old raw pork chop. Oh. I think you should do a story on it. I would pair that with a knuckle sandwich. So now it's time for our final favorite guest of honor interview. Back in June, Brendan had the pleasure of chatting with Randy Newman while Randy was on tour to support his then just released new album. Our guest of honor this week is celebrated musician Randy Newman. He has a new album out called Songbook Volume 2. In it, he does solo piano renditions of some of his earlier works. Here's a clip from his song, Dixie Flyer. I was born right here. November 43. Dad was a captain in the army Fighting the Germans in Sicily My poor little mama Didn't know a soul in L.A. Went down to the Union Station Made a getaway Got on the Dixie Flyer Bound for New Orleans Randy, first of all, my name is Brendan Francis Noonan. Yeah, Noonan. Do people ever confuse your name with mine when you're making a restaurant reservation? Uh, they do lately. I, you must be coming to some <laughs> kind of prominence. Yeah, I, I apologize for that. I'm sorry. Ah, uh, it's all right. I just go with it. If they say Noonan, I'm I'm happy to do it. <laughs> well, you've got a new album out uh, mm-hmm. called Songbook Volume Two. I do. Uh, the album is kind of a retrospective, yep. and what I find interesting about your career is that you've not only met with major commercial success and won Academy Awards, etc., but you also are considered kind of a cult favorite. 
Hmm. And like even now, young tastemakers are like really into your stuff. I mean, do you know that? Is that true? It's I mean, true, is, man. Uh, something's happening. There are like different people at the concerts. Oh yeah, uh, I asked my girlfriend this morning. I'm like, what should I ask Randy Newman? She said, "Why is he so cool?" That was her. That was her response. She's a pretty hip young lady. Hmm. So, this is a new girlfriend, huh? <laughs> no, we've we've been together for a little bit. Oh, but I'm just well, saying. I, I, I like her. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. But seriously, even though you've had mainstream success, uh, you've always been kind of a songwriter, songwriter, and cult fave. You know, what are your thoughts on that role? I, I was snobbish enough maybe to want that. Like, I like it that the when I won the Academy Award that time that the, the pit orchestra, the studio guys playing the show, stood up. That really got to me. Yeah. And I always wanted people who I thought knew something about music to like what I did. And that sort of happened. Sometimes you get what you want. And then what do you do? Yeah, that's right. And then what do you do? <laughs> After it proves to be really disappointing. <laughs> well, it's like Quincy Jones once said, famous people are always thinking two thoughts. One, I deserve this, and the other, I don't deserve this at all. They're going to find me out, yeah. <laughs> well, They are. And people you'd think would be secure in their fame or their skills, they're just not. I mean, I've read interviews with myself where it really, it's like a fourth grader begging for, you know, oh, I, this painting's no good. Oh, that's no good. This is no good. But I really mean it. I mean, I, uh, but it doesn't sound very believable. And part of the reason it's unbelievable is because you've always kind of swam against the tide. Uh, you know, you, you hung around rockers in the 70s like the Eagles, etc. Yeah, yeah. Yet you wore big glasses and a corduroy jacket. Uh, you rode in an old school piano style. You never picked up a guitar. <laughs> Where do you think you got that confidence to maintain your kind of singular voice? I picked up a guitar till the F chord hurt my finger. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really as far as I got it. It messed with me. your piano hand. Yeah. You know, the honest truth is I, I didn't notice. There's a bunch of things that I don't notice much. I think I care about very few things. And one of them is being good at what I do, uh, writing music. And, I, and cosmetics, I mean, I always, you know, album covers... Uh, I mean, I, I look like an insurance man in the first album cover. I don't know what I was thinking of. <laughs> but now don't show your don't show your girlfriend that. <laughs> but now people dress like you. They rock those big glasses and that cord jacket. You know. Yeah, believe me, it's inadvertent. If I you mean, stick you know. around long enough, maybe that's how it is. <laughs> if only Gershwin had lived. <laughs> All right. Well, look, we have two standard questions that we ask in our show. Yeah. And the first question is: What question are you tired of being asked? interviewers often ask, could you still talk about short people? I know you've had a million questions about that and all that. Uh, that question. I don't mind answering questions about short people, but yeah. that, that sort of uh, caveat. It's the meta question. Yeah. And by the way, for the two people in the world who don't know, uh, short people is a satirical song you wrote, which was widely misinterpreted as an attack on mm. short people. Yeah. Um, okay. Our second question yeah. is, tell us something about mm -hmm. you that we don't know. Uh, the first thing I thought of was people always think I'm kind of nerdly and can't do anything mm. uh, physical. Presumably that's from watching me eat. <laughs> but I mean, I, I was a uh, good athlete. Uh-huh. But so what, you know? You were a good athlete? Like, what did you play? I played basketball, uh, baseball, and football. When did you have like, time to practice piano if you were... I didn't! I, that's the... Uh-oh, uh I'm complaining again. No, no, bring it on. I didn't. I shot baskets. <laughs> so you were, you were trying out for the Lakers, or, or that was your dream? Oh, 
No, it was just fun for me. And, uh, uh, I wasn't that good. What was music for you then? It was a job. Always? It was, yes. It, it was work, and I always thought I wasn't working hard enough. Okay. I'd done very well, though. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I shouldn't keep bringing this up. I mean, I mean, it would be a good idea for me to be a little less negative, you know? Yeah. Imagine what it's like living with me from my wife and my girlfriends. <laughs> oh, whoops. Um, I don't think anyone wants to hear an album of happy songs by Randy Newman, though. Oh. Ah, laugh and be happy. Don't you ever wear a frown. Don't let the bastards grind you down. Bum, 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 bum. Laugh and be happy. It's a simple thing to do. Leaving your dream and your dream will come true for you. To be a red sun shining in a sky so blue. Blackbirds singing in a tree. To be a real silver lining up there for me and you. Listen to me. So, Brendan, great song. Yes. But though Mr. Newman released a new version this year, that is true, he wrote it decades ago, which makes it ineligible for best song of the year status. Ah, sorry, sorry. Randy. Yeah. Sorry. And this is relevant because it's time to reveal each of our favorite songs of the year. Yes, it's an annual tradition on our best of show. Yeah. And it's really, really difficult. There's so many songs out there. (laughs) Yeah. There were one or two trillion to choose from this year. Uh, but I'm going to go with one from the Dutch band M. Joe and the Jesus Herb. Sounds Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It's got this anthemic 70s folk rock sound, but the vocals are just sad and kind of wise in a way that really captured the year for me. The song is called Electronic Days. Eventually men will disappear into cyberspace. think it's a stirring song and it ends with the string section which i am personally a sucker for i can dig on the strings i, I like that right because because you're a human being is that what that means I, yes well my favorite track was by a human being from canada his name is dan behar uh, yes and his musical project is known as destroyer we actually had him as a guest way back in january mm-hmm. he had just released his album kaput and 12 months later it's still one of the best albums of the year in my opinion and other people's opinion it's received tons of accolades Here's a clip from the title track. that quiet storm rico <laughs> it's an 80s soft rock-esque curveball very smooth i'm feeling extremely mellow yeah smooth. relaxed so those happen to be our personal faves but what do we know really honestly we wanted to find out what your favorite songs of the year were so earlier this week we asked our audience to tell us 
And here are some of your responses. Hi, I'm Jessica Pregnolato. Uh, I live in Los Angeles. And the song I chose was Feist Caught a Long Wind off her new album, Metals. I listened to it over and over in my car. And then I think it was just one night driving. I just finally heard it. Little bird, have you got a key? Unlock the lock inside of me. And I just sort of went with the song. I mean, she's talking about flying over an ocean, and I was all of a sudden weeping and, and in amazement that someone can do that. It, it definitely really moved me. Cut along. And then all of a sudden starts talking about different kinds of birds, a, a swallow, a night owl. It doesn't ever get precious. It doesn't ever become silly. She catches that balance. I will start clapping along with that song every time. Hi, my name's Alexis Morrell, and I'm from the Eastern Shore of Maryland. The song that I picked was Money by the drum. It's like an upbeat song about like that you want to get somebody something but you don't have any money. I'm a grad student right now and that's pretty much the story of my life. <laughs> Just listening to it makes me feel like, oh, I'm not the only one. It kind of makes you laugh at it, so I think that's a good state to be in when you can't do anything about it. Thinking about probably putting together a mix of that and like the Muppets and just be like, hey, I don't have anything to give you except for a mix of regenerated music. My name is Doug Joubert. I'm from Washington, D.C. One of my top songs for 2011 is Lena Del Rey and her song, Video Games. Swinging in the backyard, pull up in your fast car, whistling my name. Open up a beer and you say get over here and play a video game. I actually got turned on to Lena Del Rey from your podcast. Once I heard the song, I went and looked at her video on YouTube and just fell in love with her immediately. My friends really gave me a hard time. I mean, I'm 47, and I haven't had a rock and roll crush like this since Deborah Harry and Blondie. I was just obsessed with her. I just played that song over and over again. It's you, it's you, it's all for you. Everything I do, tell you all the time. Feist, the drums, and Lana Del Rey among our listeners' favorite songs of the year. Us too. And to hear about opportunities to share your favorite stuff on the air, keep an eye on our blog at dinnerpartydownload.org. And that's it, folks. The best of the Dinner Party 2011. Yes. This year we've grown from a little teensy-weensy baby eight-minute show to a big, strong hour. And we couldn't have done it without your help. So thanks for your suggestions, your ears, and even your occasional mean emails. Ditto. Except for the mean emails. Actually, I didn't mean that either. Jackson Musker helps produce our show. Thanks to Ravi Carmen, Brendan Willard, Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Judy McAlpin. And I'd like to dedicate the show to the memory of David Spencer. 
Be sure to tune in next week for our special all-new List show, where we look back at 2011 and ahead to 2012 through the lens of lists. Who can resist a list? We can't even resist alliteration or rhyme. Happy holidays.